0: if you would take your Bibles and turn to the book of James. Book of James. We are going to continue and finish um, our series today um, called Table Manners. Um, We live in in this world that we're not seeing. We're not seeing people coming together in unity. If we do see that, um, we see that, that often around... Um, Not positive things or things that we would say as Christian are are positive. What we do see is we see a a world um, in division, um, constantly fracturing into smaller and smaller pieces. And so we've we've called this series Table Manners in an effort to hopefully prepare you uh, to get together for the holiday season in which... You're going to be gathering around with extended family and friends around the table. And people say that that's a stressful time. And it's a stressful time because unity doesn't exist um, very well around that table. There's all kinds of things happening and things in flux. And there's, 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 you know, we haven't been together um, for a holiday. Um, And now there's travel and those kinds of things. And the world has shifted in the meantime. Um, this may be a Thanksgiving and Christmas season, um, unlike what we've had in the past. You know, so how, is the people of, how as the people of God do we equip ourselves um, for the inevitable conflicts, that, the potential conflicts and inevitable conflicts that will take place? So we're, we're doing this in effort to really think about a situation that's a reality that's coming up. But, but when we look at this, and when we really consider these things, um, it is um, it's a reality in everyday life. It's it's a reality in the church, it's a reality in our homes, in the workplace, in our community, in the nation. How as Christians ought we to respond to the conflict and division that is around us? So last week um, we went to God's word and we said, What? What divides? And so we looked at God's word and we said, what divides? Now, we did not cover the waterfront of every strategy that divides people. But there's certainly, when you look at the scriptures through and through, there is conflict. It is a book all about conflict and at the root is our sin. And the whole thing, the whole tension in the book is how is this going to be resolved? And um, we know that it is resolved in Jesus Christ and in his work, and that it is resolved. But there's plenty of places of division. And so we looked at those, and we said, okay, how do we see this in the world around us? And so there's many more strategies for division um, that we see in the Bible that are reflected in the world around us. We touched on five. Today, we are going to look at the why. Why is there conflict? And there's actually a why underneath the why. Right? So we're going to look at what's the, what's, why is, does conflict exist? We're also going to say, okay, what do we need to do about it? But there's a why underneath the why. Um, because oftentimes you're in conflict, and, and don't you say, why God? <laughs> why is this happening? You know, can't you, you know, wave your magic whatever over this and just make it all go away? Don't we wish for that? Right, We wish for that. So then why is it that, there's, there's, that it exists in the first? Why does he let us go through this valley? And um, there's an answer in Scripture for why that is. Now, we oftentimes look for like the granular answer. Right? God doesn't give us that, but he does give us an answer. Right? And, and thanks be to God, he gives us the answer, and the answer applies to every person in the room. Which is a wonderful thing, right? Don't minimize what the scripture says about your life. Now, understanding it's not about you. It's, it's about God and about how God is shaping his people, right? So that's, that is traveling instructions, right? We do that in Bible study. You got to go back to say, what did, it, what did the author intend? What did the readers hear? And then we kind of turn the corner and go, now, how do I apply this to, to our lives? And that is where we get wisdom for the ages. So you're in the book of James the book of James. The book of James is about wisdom. This is what we need for this situation. In our homes, in our lives, in the community, how do we how do how are we wise about living? Right? We need wisdom. That, you get to a conflict or a problem, you need you go, what should I do? What should I do here? And so wisdom means making a judgment. James is about judging rightly. That's what it, what it's about. There's, if you've been around church for a little while, you, you, you go to James and, and there there seems to be this theological debate. There is this theological debate, which is there and it's important to address, but I don't know that James is necessarily writing to talk about, um, um, so this, this salvific or soteriological works and grace, like, you know, and, and we'll kind of pit Paul against James. And if you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, it's probably good. We'll just introduce you to the book and you won't have to um, deal with all of that. I mean, it's not bad that you deal with that. But sometimes that's all that we think about when we think about the book of James. It's Can somebody, you know, s- somebody saved by works, you know? Somebody said, by grace, just grace. And, you know, what if they don't have works? And like, and then we get down into, like, the weeds of that discussion and we miss that James is a wisdom book and that it's written so that we would judge rightly. And that's really the purpose of the author. So the struggle is that um, oftentimes what we judge by is the standard of what everybody knows. That becomes our standard. Well, this is what everybody knows. Everybody's doing this. Everybody knows this. The problem with that standard is the standard of what everybody knows fluctuates, right? So go in your mind to, like, 1950. Just, let's, you know, that's, that's actually too conservative. That was before the sexual revolution. You know, that's before, like, you know, weed. Oh, wait, that's today. No, that was then, too. Um, you know, that was, that's, you know, so how about the 70s? right cuz so we're going to talk about something conservative and judging by what everybody knows let's go after the 60s into the 70s cuz that's not real conservative the 70s so if you had story time at the local library here and a man was going to read a book to little children but he came dressed in women's clothing and in women's makeup mostly looking like a woman actually looking like a woman, to read now to children. In the 70s, remember, it's not now. In the 70s, in the 70s, there would be outrage, right? There would be outrage. What in the world is going on? Why? Well, because everybody knows in the 70s, that's strange. That doesn't fit the standard. Now come to today. Is that what everybody knows? The answer is no. In fact, a lot of people would argue actually for that, as a healthy thing for little children. It is not a healthy thing. We're not advocating for that. Do you understand my point, though? The standard of what everyone knows, which oftentimes informs our earthly wisdom and our judgment, is a fluctuating Standard. It's a fluctuating standard. Now, there are standards. You think about God's law and organizing a family. Do you, does your family have discipline? I hope it does. It's rather chaotic if it doesn't have discipline. Well, we do have a standard in our, our culture, it is the standard of what everyone knows. Um, and it reminded me I actually came in last week, and, and one of you were reading um, that book Seculosity so the The book is just simply this: The author has said that um, the the church of old and the and the culture have flipped, in other words, secular society has a religion, it actually has law and it has standards, and it has discipline to maintain those particular standards the church standard is kind of what everything goes just be nice be nice is the standard it used to be that in society it was like just be nice and the christians were like hey we need to live according to god's rule of law here like you came to church it used to be a day like you came to church and i would not be dressed appropriately to open god's word from this pulpit right now some of you are going, yeah, I remember those days, right? That was the church in its standards, right? And we would say it's not necessarily bad, but now the world has standards. How do we know this? Well, we know if you don't meet the standard, guess what? You get what? Canceled. You get excommunicated, like totally. The, the church actually, or the, the, the world is actually. Acting in a form, it is a pathological and not a consistent one by any means. It's it's a little bit of lunacy, but it has a particular standard. Violate the law of what everyone knows, and you will be canceled rather quickly. I met with um, some pastors in Hillsdale, and one of them said, so they were from all over. One was from an urban area, and he said, I have... Community leaders, elected community leaders, that say publicly, if you believe what Christians believe, you are immoral. Right? It's flipped. The standard of what everyone knows is a standard by which people judge. Abraham Kuyper, who is both a a theologian as well as um, a prime minister, uh, a political figure, he said this. The conflict has always been between Christianity, or has always been Christianity or paganism. The idols, it's idols or the living God. It's always been Christianity or paganism. That's the, the division. So James is addressing how do we judge? So this is what we're going to look at today. I'll read the passage we're going to be in verse 13 um, from or I'm sorry, verse 12. And I'm going to read through of, of uh, chapter 3. And I'm going to read then through verse 12 of chapter 4. Um, and so here's where we're going today. Here's kind of the outline. So we're going to look at wisdom. Wisdom. What, what is it? If, um, it is the source of peace and reconciliation. And then next, um, we'll look at worldliness. Worldliness. And we get to that um, underlying cause of conflict then there's a warning in the passage there's a there is a warning in the passage and the warning is actually against idolatry and then the why and so there's the why which really hits on the, the, the worldliness but we're, it's the why is the it's the why underneath the why why does god lead us through these things so look at the scriptures with me chapter 3 in verse 12 it says can a fig tree my brothers bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not The wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you you ask and you do not receive, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So James, just a little bit of context. James opens up and he says this. So it's a book on conflict. How do I know? Well, after the introduction, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in dispersion. Greetings, he says. Count it all joy, brothers, when you have these people gathered around your Thanksgiving table that don't get along and have various opinions. That's the introduction. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Opening sentence to the letter. You get a letter from somebody that looks like that, you're like, Oh my, drama is following. That's true. Like he, but, he's, but he's writing not simply for drama, he's writing for wisdom right because we will encounter all kinds of trials. And so he so he he does that he he talks about these trials um that he has. And and but he's he's getting at something. He's he he ends that with this idea that there has to be action as a Christian. You've got to be acting, acting towards something. And and so that's why he talks about true religion. Um, In verse um, 26, he says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not hold his tongue, bridle his tongue, right? Or direct his tongue, but, uh, his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. He's going to say a few more things about words and the importance of words. But before he does, he addresses, this. this is a sandwich here, he, he talks about words and actions, um and he says, "Here, let me illustrate it. Here's a person that is coming in this is chapter two is rich, and people are judging. they say, "Oh, you have lots of stuff. come sit here in this nice seat and James says that's crazy you're you're looking at the outward you' you're you have you have a particular standard and and the standard is that they have is the standard of." what everybody knows right everybody knows this person is wealthy everyone knows they should have preferential treatment and james says you know that that's that's a terrible way to judge and remember these are the same people that are oppressing you it's rather foolhardy you know to do that you you can't judge by outward appearances you It is the sin of partiality, judging by what you know and making what you know the standard. And then he goes on, he talks about the fact that we need to have action behind what we truly believe. Then he says, oh, the tongue, right? The tongue's a fire. You let the fire get out of the fireplace, it sets the house on fire. That is no good. We can't get away from using words. That's the nature of idolatry. So, so I, you, can, you can use words in idol worship or you can use words to glorify God, right? It, it's idolatry. You can use money, right, simply to spend on yourself and your own desires. or You can use money to glorify God, right? You can use sex and sexuality uh, either to follow after your own desires and fulfill your own desires or you can use it to glorify God the nature of idolatry in idolatry we can't get around the the substance of idolatry because idolatry at its core is taking the gift and worshiping the gift rather than the the giver worshiping creation rather than the creator and so he talks about that in how we use our words and that's where it ends there where we began hey you can't have true religion from this heart And that's saying these other things. You can't truly be um, a follower of Jesus and say one thing. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? The answer is? Okay, come on, 11 o'clock. you with me? The answer is? No. Okay, it's no. A grapevine cannot produce figs, neither can salt pond yield Fresh water. They can't do that. So then he says, who is wise and understanding among you? Notice the contrast between words. He says this, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So we're looking at wisdom. Wisdom is the source of peace and reconciliation. And he's saying here, it's not words. It's words rightly fitted, rightly fitted into conduct. He says, if you're going to have understanding, it's not because you say you know. It's because your words and your conduct match. And, and that paints a picture. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Right? Meekness is what? It is power under control. Right, it is power under control. Um, that's where he says he talks about the power under control is words and conduct. Right, it's the it's the the bit you put in horses' mouths. It's the rudder that you use to steer a, a large ship. That meekness of wisdom. And then he contrasts that. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast, and now here's the speaking again, and be false to the truth. The speaking and conduct be false to the truth. So wisdom is the source of peace and reconciliation. We show wisdom through our conduct in meekness. That's important when you think about your Thanksgiving table. When you think about any. Place of conflict. It ought to be in meekness. He says here, but there's the opposite of wisdom, which is worldliness and why. So we get at the first why here in this um, definition of worldliness. This the source, he says, is this look at verse 15. This is not the wisdom. All right, so this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, and by that it doesn't mean of creation, but it means fallen, sinful, carnal, earthly, unspiritual. you know, and here's the whack upside the head, demonic, right? I mean, that's really strong language. Where does, Where does this, this not wisdom, what is it? It's worldliness, and it, it, it comes from where? Well, it comes from. Evil, Satan, it's demonic. It comes from the pit of hell. He says this, Now, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So here is the contrast of wisdom. He's going to come back to wisdom. But here he's describing worldliness. Worldliness comes out where there's, there, there's it's not this vertical right he says he's he's going to say that um wisdom from above look at the next is first pure we have wisdom that comes down from vertical from god but where does the wisdom of the world come is when we comes is when we're looking at each other when we're constantly comparing us with another see that's that's what happens when we live in a world that's constantly you are being compared to the person next to you to the person that lives far there's constant comparison and he says what this is what happens when we are constantly looking and we're looking at what everybody else has and what everybody else is doing what everybody else thinks what happens what does our heart, what, is, what happens in our heart? There's jealousy, but there's not just jealousy. What, how does he describe it? Bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy. There's something that happens in our heart where we are jealous of what other people have and are doing. You see, this, 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 this description is the description of what, what everybody knows. How everybody lives what everybody else is doing, what they all think. And what happens is when there's this envy that springs up in, in our hearts. Now, we could say, well, there's a root to that fruit of sin, and that's pride, right? Because ultimately, James is saying, well, you know, we're looking to a standard saying we know better than what God's word says, right? So, so here, so yes, it comes out of pride, but he's saying what this turns into is a bitter envy and, and, and that it moves into now ambition. We become ambitious. And what does the world do to this kind of selfish ambition? You're doing it. Look at you. You're now arriving at the standard and it's going to cheer you on. Right? That's, that's what's going gonna, gonna to cheer you on and say, hey, you're doing well. And you know what God's word says? When we look at this, this horizontal standard of what everybody knows, how everybody lives, what everybody thinks, this standard that fluctuates, we have to be selfishly ambitious because we are thinking of ourselves in order now to conform to that law, to that standard. And so this is worldliness, which he's going to go on and says this opposes God. By a standard of living in selfish ambition, you can oppose God. And and the the word of God says this is idolatry. This is idol worship. But you're not going to get a whole lot of pushback against that. Because it's just what's normal. It's kind of like the air that we breathe. You're actually going to be encouraged in that, lauded, applauded. You ask young people today, what do they want to be? What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an influencer. It's top of the list. When, when I was, Although I do have to say I was talking to, to uh, Eli Gooch. He's not here in the room. He was in first service. That boy is crazy about excavators. That's what he wants to be. And how how old is Eli Grace? 4? Maybe 4. He can tell you everything about an excavator. How it operates like but he would be the exception. Most people are not like excavator driver, right? Most people are influencers. In fact, it's it's a it's a growing industry to be an influencer. Think about what is an influencer? Is not an influencer a giver of wisdom? It's a dispenser of wisdom. Here's how you ought to live. Let me influence you. Let me tell you how to live. And, And we've turned an influencer into a consumer product. It is a growing consumer product. Amanda French is one of the top influencers. Her books have sold tens of thousands of copies her latest book, can't read the whole title, rich as, you can fill in the last part, we're in church. That's selling like crazy. Number one influencer. What the Bible says is that is idolatry. We are in this soup. And he says, here's what's gonna happen. Here's the, here's the outcome of this standard of what everybody knows There will be order or disorder? Disorder. What are we seeing around us, around the table, in our churches, in our community, in our nation, around the world? And every vile practice. We're living in an age... Where there is nothing that is being labeled vile. Hardly anything. You know, for a long time, we've called things crimes. Now we label them not a psychological disorder, but rather rightly ordered. And we call them minor attracted persons. Now a constituency group. Every vile practice. Oh, but it's okay. I'm ambitious. No, you're, you have the wrong standard. It's not the standard of what everyone knows. That's the contrast here. But wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit. Impartial. And that's interesting. How can it be impartial? Well, because it is God's standard. And we'll see that more. And sincere. And here's, here's the outcome of, of heavenly wisdom. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, some can read that and say, well, that looks like a doormat to me. You know, when somebody's wrong, I just tell them they're wrong. I'm just, I'm just telling people how, what I think and how I feel. You know, because that just looks like a doormat. Did you catch the scripture reading today? Proverbs, Proverbs. I'm sorry, Psalm 95. It recounts, it's a thanksgiving, it's a psalm of thanksgiving. It begins, make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation, and then it recounts the end. Our fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. And they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's God speaking. You know, God is not afraid to tell us the truth. It's not, his wisdom is not a doormat. Further, it says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Literally, there's this war, this Worldliness is at war within a person. You desire and have not, and so notice the character of God in this. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He's further carrying this um, and further describing this worldly wisdom. He says, "But notice the character of God. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you just want it for yourself. It's that selfish ambition. God knows in your heart you're not asking for that new bicycle so you can glorify God on it." Right? You're asking because you want it. That's it. Because you ask wrongly to do what? Spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. That's pretty strong language. Right? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? See, this is the deceptive, sneaky nature of idolatry. We can sit in these rows and say thanks be to God and be bowing to the golden calf and we think we're worshiping the God of the Bible when we could not be further from the truth. But notice how God looks at you and me. Here's the character of God I want you to see before we move further. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God or do you suppose It is of no purpose that the scripture says. Notice the character of God. Notice what God feels for you. He yearns, strong emotional word. He yearns jealously. We saw saw jealousy earlier as a bad thing. This is a good thing. He is jealous over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, in you. Notice how he responds. We are going astray. And what is God doing? He is yearning for you. And what does He give? More grace. He does that in righteous judgment. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, here's the key, right? Here's the key of having heavenly wisdom. Here's what we need to do is verse 7. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Submit yourself, therefore, to God's word. You want to judge rightly? Judge by the word of God. Ask yourself a lot. What does God's word say about this? God's word says a lot about a lot of things in life. And we get stuck. I just don't know which way to go. Well, look to God's word. And be careful that we don't use it as a rabbit's foot and, you know, like we're sprinkling some magic dust because we open our Bibles and we're like, what do I need to do? That's not how we read God's word. Look to wisdom in, in God's word about what he talks about. And you will know, you'll know. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and then what? He will do what? Flee. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. It's talking about repentance. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. You want wisdom? Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Don't think that you know. Rather, in your knowledge, let your joy be gloom. In your, be humble, right? Humble yourselves before the Lord and what will happen? He will exalt you. That's the way it goes. Now notice again, he revisits this issue of what? Speech. So he talks about wisdom and worldliness. There's the warning against idolatry. We know why now. Why is there conflict? It's what's happening in the heart. And what happens is it comes out around the dinner table. And he says here, notice he turns to speech. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. In other words, he's saying if you speak evil against another person, if you speak evil against another person, what are you doing? You're judging God's law. What you're doing is you're saying, I've got a law better than God's law. I'm a judge better than God's judge, better than God judges. This law is what I know, and what I know everyone should know. That's what he's saying here. But if you but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. See the connection? You're not actually living to God's standard. You've just made yourself a judge. And then he says, there's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to what? Save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Right? Does this mean that there, there's no, we shouldn't make any judgments? Is that what it's saying? Oh, you probably heard, well, uh, judge not lest you be judged, right? We used to hear that, right, from, from outside the church. Now we hear it from inside the church out. Hasn't the standard flipped? Right? And what he's saying here is there's one judge, there's one law, and the one who judges is the one who has the ability to save and to destroy. Notice, notice um, chapter 2, verse 12. It says this So speak and act. As those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, when we understand what do we get because of our sins? What do you and I get, church, because we have sinned? What's the payment? Death. What have we been given? Mercy. Mercy. We've been given mercy in Jesus Christ. We ought to judge. We can judge. We ought to judge according to God's standard, according to God's law, and in God's way. That's how we're called to judge. It's really difficult, right? Because we spend our days oftentimes looking at things, taking in things, where we are doing what? We're either judging or we are envious. And some people spend hours and hours and hours and hours developing a standard of what I know everybody knows. What everybody knows is what I know. When we're called to be judged according to God's standard. And God's standard is death. And because we know that we have not received death, but we have received life in Jesus Christ, in his, his life, in his death, In his resurrection, in his ascension, mercy triumphs over judgment. How can we be merciful? Because Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the judge. So sometimes we can sit back and just smile and think you go down that road, you're going to get yours. (laughs) Not because I judge. I could be wrong. But nobody gets away with anything. Sinners deserve death. From the smallest to the greatest, we're not the judge, ultimately. God is. Which means we can be people of mercy and grace, even as God is merciful and gracious. But that's not the world we live in. We live in a world where we're actually, right, it's different. The world used to tell the church, don't judge, right? Now the world has become judge and jury, and there are judgments, and you better meet their standards. That's what's being told. But is this the way God operates? It is not. And so the question is, Lord, why don't you just put an end to this conflict? Come on now. Get with it. I don't, like, I don't like dealing with this. You want to get an amen? Right? I just want turkey and gravy. And not the kind I sent to you in my email. That'll make you read my email. Don't follow that recipe. Why does God allow this to happen? Go to Psalm 51. Okay, so Psalm fifty. Well, go to Psalm 51. Okay, so I'm going to tell you the why. Here's, as I do that, so a little segue here. Uh, The question that I got most often this week was, when do we speak and when do we be silent, right, of these things? Well, we're to speak God's word. There are times, so I think there's a principle um, that um, is here. It's directed to the church. It's directed to the church and how to deal with conflict in the church. It's applicable to your Thanksgiving table, your table, to your community, to your work. And it's what about these people who just won't listen, right? They know. In Titus, it says, As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and self-condemned, right? So there is a time to walk away. Now, again, it's a wisdom as to how to handle that, right? So there's wisdom. Be patient, be merciful, be gracious, right so there are times the bible says to to walk away but there are other, there are other times that we need to engage with truth if a person is willing to to listen but the question is like why do we have to even deal with all of this kind of thing um, so i 'm going to set you up a little bit for two Sundays from now next sunday i 'm so thankful that we have Director of the Gospel mission, pastor Brown that 's going to be with us you 're not going to want to miss this sunday you 're going to want to invite somebody um, to be with you this Sunday um, to hear Dr. Brown speak um, uh, for us. but the following sunday we 're back in, in the, the book of Psalms. but I want to do something I want to just talk about it. so i show you this this diagram it 's a diagram, not a theological diagram but a diagram of circumstance. So I want you to see something in biblical history as well in the Psalms that answers the question of why do you have these trials and why do you have this conflict? So the Bible starts out, if on the left is Genesis and it's Adam and Eve in the garden. What happens by the third chapter of the Bible? There's a fall. And why I said this is not theological, it's circumstantial is that the fall should just drop right off the screen, right? If you had to should just be a radical fall. But it's circumstantial. Things were not, in circumstance, you know, they, were, they were radically different in some ways and not in others, but it was bad. And then you had, you, know, you had this time where things seemed to be okay and you had Noah and there was kind of this hope. Is Noah the one that's promised? It's not. And then after Noah, things got worse because at the bottom, where do the people of God find themselves? They find themselves in slavery in Egypt. But then Moses comes along and Moses does what? Moses leads them out and into the promised land. And things look better. They look really good. This is it. And so you had the first king, right? 2 Samuel 7 was a promise of a king on the throne of, of, of Israel forever. And things are going to be great. The first king, eh. why? Because they wanted to do what? They wanted to, they, how was Israel looking? They were going like this. It wasn't that God hadn't promised a king. He had. It wasn't that he didn't want them to have a king. he did. But it was the reason they wanted a king. They wanted to do what? They, they were like, man, you know, Cavagram. right? Like, we, I see these other nations have kings, and I want like to be like them." And so they, they picked the wrong king. They, they were doing the right thing. King, That was good. Wrong guy. They didn't wait for God. So then it gets really good because David's the man. In fact, all through scripture, David is a type of Christ, right? He is, he is typical. In fact, we're called to pattern our lives after him. After what? After David, right? And so we'll come back to that, in Psalm 51. So then Solomon and what happens on our timeline, what happens after Solomon in the divided kingdom gets bad, gets really bad. Right? Because they're in, they're in captivity. It's really bad. Do they come out of captivity? Ezekiel, there's a passage in Ezekiel where, where it says, "They actually return to the land, and he says, we're still slaves, even though we're back." Right? So the temple was restored, and so it, it looks like it's getting better. And then who comes on the scene? Jesus. Right? Now, you can take this. And you could overlay this on the life of Jesus. Right? How does Jesus' life go? I would submit to you it kind of looks like this pattern. Right? So take the So Jesus comes and then there's obviously the promise at the end of the Gospels, the New Testament. You know, promise of consummation. It gets really good. You take the psalms. Psalms are, so this is the context for two weeks from now. So save it. Um, I'll pick up right here. You're all going to remember it perfectly good psalm one and two is really that it's that window to the rest of the psalms so in fact some would so the psalms come back and book one could actually be psalm one so psalm one through 41 is the explanation of psalm one psalm 42 through 72 is an explanation of psalm two what do you have in in psalm one blessed is the man right Woo! it's starting really good and psalm two Why are the nations raging against God? God's there in heaven, scoffing, laughing. And then he says, kiss the son, because you are going to kiss the son, because he's going to rule over all, but not all submit to God. Right? And so it kind of starts up here and then gets bad. Well, then he goes to Psalm 22. And who can't help but think of the crucifixion? It gets bad in the Psalms. It seems to get better. Psalm 40 and and 41 and book 2 opens there's a there's um a a transition as you see psalm or book two we finished book two which is really that's about it's about the king in his kingdom but but you can see that the trajectory it kind of goes down after that and um we we go into it ends in psalm 72 which is solomon and uh psalm 72 that we covered is as the king goes so the people go And then Psalm 73, Asaph writes the psalm, my feet almost stumbles. And it goes all the way to Psalm 89, where we see the imagery of Psalm 88, I cry out, it's really bad, it's dark. If you have a really happy day and you kind of need to come down, read Psalm 88 and 89, bring it down. Because they're these deep, dark basement psalms uh, uh, talking about being cast off and rejected. How long, oh Lord? And then book four opens up. Huh. It's the only Mosaic psalm. What do you think we're back to? Hey, people, this is a football. We're back to basics. Hey, remember the law, right? That's what Deuteronomy is. One faithful generation in the scriptures. What generation was that? That's why Deuteronomy is so important. Raising children. Deuteronomy 6 is so important. Because their parents' generation were not faithful. What did they do? They wandered through the wilderness. They saw everything that God did. They got up to the promised land. And then what did they do? There's giants here. We can't do it. (laughs) We're out. Well, they were out. God said, you're out. You're never getting in. And what do you think those parents did? Well, they got serious about raising the next generation. Because things got better. Things, things got better as that one faithful generation went in and conquered and settled the land. But then what happened, right? They got worse. And that's where, you have, um, that's where you have that fall, that precipitous fall. They went into captivity. But then Psalm 90 begins with hope, right? This getting back to the law, getting back to God's law. And it ends with Psalm 106, where God is gathering from the nations all his people. What is he doing today? From every tongue, tribe, and nation, he is gathering, right? And then the Psalms take off. In Psalm 107 to Psalm 150, you you see David shows up again. Who is he? He is the wise king. Wisdom is attributed to David. And we come back to Psalm 51. Where is the wisdom of David? Well, the wisdom of David is in repentance. And and that's that's what James is saying. The wisdom is repenting of our own thinking and our own way and adopting the standard of what everyone knows and going God's way. But I want you to see something that we didn't cover when we actually went through how to repent based on Psalm 51. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. What was David's sin? It was high-handed sin. It was high-handed sin. He knew what he was doing. Right? Sin of adultery and murder. So think about the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. So, Think before you answer. I want an answer. The sacrificial system and the sacrifices that were made in tabernacle and temple—did they cover high-handed sin? The answer is no. They were—they covered sins of omission, but they didn't cover David's sin. So how does he live? Does God make a mistake there with David? I mean, obviously, we're in church, so you're going to go, no. But I want you to really think that's a good question to ask, isn't it? When you see this high handed sin, David knows that what he deserves is to be taken out and stoned. That's not what happens. Is God just in his judgment? We'd have to say yes, right? Because of the character and nature of, of God. He is just. So then how does it happen that he is just? We we tend to think, and this is a Western thinking, we tend to think that his justice and his holiness is apart from his love. But when we read the Old Testament, we see this concept of his hesed, his covenant-keeping love. That's why the New Testament writers say, God is love. They're actually just saying an Old Testament principle. They're restating something that we see... Through and through the Old Testament, these people that say, oh, I just want the New Testament Jesus, right? Or the people that just like, oh, I'm just going to live by the red letters of the Bible. Those are Jesus' words. Well, no, if you read Jesus, he says the whole word is his word. Stupid. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I not say that. Forgive me, parents. Forgive me, children. I know you're not allowed to use those words. I'll find some other vocabulary. But that's what it is. The whole word is the word. That's what Jesus says. It's the whole word. So we have a problem. How does this happen? How is, how is God just in this passage? Because David does not die. Is it simply looking forward to Jesus? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things that we need to understand. One, like his justice comes out of his love it springs from that hesed, that covenant-keeping love. Right? His holiness springs from that. God still requires a life. Was there a life required at the time of David's repentance? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's... Uh, there's, there's, I don't want to press too hard on that because there's just a lot of things I don't understand um, in that. But yeah, life was required. God was just. David's sin was forgiven. God is just. But David did something that others have not done. He knew what he deserved, and what did he do? He repented and he went to God and said, God, I'm going to rely on your standard. Right? He didn't. He just said, I, whatever, whatever may be. Uh, he says, I know my transgression. My sin is ever before you. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I mean, we have to think of Romans 3 when we read that. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You think David knew of God's justice? Yes, but he also knew deeply of God's mercy and deeply of God's grace, and he didn't separate those. So neither should you around your Thanksgiving table. You know, with the uncle who always gets political and is not of your political persuasion. With the person that just seems to bring division and divisiveness, no matter wherever they go. We need to judge by God's standard, understanding that we have been judged. It doesn't mean that we are people that are that are unjust. No, it means that we are a people who trust in the one that is just and the one that has mercy and grace. So there's a lot of wisdom in knowing when to speak, and there's a lot of wisdom in knowing when to hold your tongue. The way you can judge whether or not you're on that path, James says, is the conduct. How are you living? Right? Are you consistent with that? What's your consistency? Words can do a lot of destruction. Words can edify. Words can praise. And so what we see here is if we take in God's standard, we know, right, there's something beautiful about this because as we come to church, we are reminded week after week there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? Do we believe that? That is God's standard. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? There's a kind of a, a churchy thing we call fencing the table of communion. Right? We're supposed to guard the table of communion so that people who are unworthy of communion do not receive communion. Right? That, that comes from the Bible. We won't go into all of that. So why don't we have like flaming swords up here? You know, are we supposed to examine our lives to see if there's any high-handed sin in our life? Yes. Are we supposed to be so introspective that, Lord, if there's some sin that I did that I don't know? No, because what? You know, confess your high-handed sins, and what happens? He's faithful and just to forgive you of sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you messed up, if you sinned, and you're unaware of it, guess what happens? The, the blood of Jesus Christ covers it. It's covered. It's covered right so the reason we don't have flaming swords up here is like you can confess your sin in your seats and what happens in a moment what you are forgiven you're forgiven so we're reminded in church when we come to church there ought to be a big banner that says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and it is wrong if then we say well we're going to make further standards and more judgments what unites us is the blood of Jesus Christ and forgiveness. We are people who have been shown mercy and grace. We are people of the book. We are people of truth. How do we know what truth is? It's through the lens of Scripture. You see, what this does is it, it, it places you on the right side of history because <laughs> we know the end. What it does is it, it makes you a person of justice who is merciful and gracious, ultimately a person of love. It helps you understand when to speak and when to be silent, when to 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 speak of the hope that you have within you, when to make an apologetic, to discern is this person listening to me, or do I need to just let that go? Because they're going their own way. Right? Some people don't need to be warned, they just need to be ignored. Right? Some people need to be warned. It's going to give you that kind of wisdom what that's going to make you is loving and dangerous all at the same time. You see, that's Jesus. And that's who needs to be seated around that table. And I would say not just in Thanksgiving, right? Every single day of the week and every time we come to this table. He is seated here with us. He is transforming us. He is our hope that makes you loving, just, and dangerous. Be all three by the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, you have equipped us with your word. Not my words. They are faulty, frail, and insufficient. But your word is sufficient for all things. And so I pray that we would heed your word, um, that we would trust your word, um, that um, you would work in our hearts to bring us to repentance so that we truly know your grace. We admit we are self-deceived. We look around us more than we look to you. Um, And that only causes bitter envy and selfish ambition to spring from our hearts. And so, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us, that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness, And that you would continue to transform your people by your grace. Thank you for those that are gathered here. We're gathered in this room because you have revealed to us that we are sinners and we need you. And now you commission us because now the world needs the church. And the world needs the church so that they know that they are sinners. And that they know that they need you. And we cannot accomplish that task on our own. We need your spirit And we need your wisdom that comes from the word of God. We cannot do it in our own strength. We cannot do it in our own family. We need you to work. And so we are calling upon you. Um, We are claiming the promises that you have made for your people. And we're asking for you to work right here in our church, in our family, in our community, in our nation, in the world. All for your glory, this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.